So how are you doing? It's kind of hard, isn't it? This practice, retreat, spending this time sitting and walking. It's hard on the body. The body aches and complains. Find you had muscles you didn't even know you had that are aching. And the mind complains. I've already said this. Do I have to say this again? (laughs) Or what was it I was saying? You know, you say it a hundred times, a thousand times, and then it's just gone. You can't even remember the next phrase. And of course, the emotions, the heart, all of the different moods and feelings that you've gone through today. Joy and delight and resistance and irritation and sadness and anger and fear. Just that whole complex array of experiences that it is to be a human being. And it's challenging us on all these levels, this practice. So it's difficult. The only thing we can assure you of is that it's going to change. Our hope is that it will change for the better, but of course we can't guarantee that. You know, it could get worse, you know. Tomorrow, who knows what's going to happen. But my faith actually is that the general tendency, the general direction, there'll be some ups and downs, is that it will get better as you settle into being here, the body adjusts, the resistance and the restlessness uh, decreases, there's more a sense of connecting with the practice, you really start to feel the benefit and the power of, of this practice. But in these early days, it's difficult. It really is. I don't know that I've been on a retreat yet, and I've been on a lot of retreats where at some point during the retreat, I've had the thought, why did I think this was a good idea? You know, that time when you signed up for the retreat, you weren't thinking about the aching body and the sleepiness and the dullness and the restlessness that, that happen on retreat. We don't think about that. We think about the good stuff. So it's difficult. We really want to acknowledge that. But our willingness to just keep going, to keep starting again, to have some sense of acceptance of these conditions, as challenging as they are, and being willing to put one foot in front of the other and say one phrase after the other. It really is what we need to do to have this practice unfold. And it's as simple and as difficult as that. really is both. So this is a powerful practice. All of us are here because we have benefited from doing it intensively on long retreats, but we realize how challenging it is because of the way it works on all these different levels of our being. We call it a purification practice for that reason, because it really is like taking everything out for a deep clean, just scrubbing everything. And every one of you will have a different retreat. Even if you've been on a metta retreat before, you had some intention about what you wanted to work on on this retreat, some objective, it's not going to happen like that. That I can almost guarantee you, if you had some objective. We don't know, we can't know what's going to unfold. And each one of you will have a different retreat from the person sitting next to you, from those around you. So we just have to be willing to enter on this journey And it's a little bit of journey into the unknown. And often it's kind of a wild ride. It's a real roller coaster. 
through the, the emotions and the, the physical experiences that we can have, the thoughts and memories that will come up. And I'm always just so impressed and inspired that over 90 people want to sign up for this wild, unpredictable roller coaster ride. Uh, it's, it's really quite uh, remarkable that this is so. Because just think about what you might have done today if you weren't on this retreat. Would have been quite a different day, I bet. And, you know, especially during the work week or whatever you do that, that takes a lot of your time, just think of the kind of mind states you are cultivating, the sense of busyness and distractedness, the sense of pressure that's nearly always there, of getting things done and rushing to and fro. And, you know, even on a Saturday, there's a list of chores and the shopping and the gardening and the cleaning and the doing this and the doing that and the multitasking that we're... Uh, you know, the society seems to push on us to get things done. They're actually finding that multitasking is a myth. And that really that scientists, neuroscientists, are now proving that what the Buddha always said is actually true. You do one thing at a time. You can only really pay one attention to one thing at a time. It's just that time, that moment is quite rapid. And, you know, so you can actually do a lot of things at once as long as they're the same kind of thing. So like driving is a good example. You know, if you're driving, you actually are multitasking in a way. You know, you, you've got your objective of where you want to go and you're looking out for all the cars and you're listening, you might be talking to someone. But it's all collected around a singular activity with a singular intention. Where people get into trouble, of course, is the driving and the cell phone, especially the driving and the text. I mean, it's just mind-boggling, isn't it? Driving and texting doesn't go together does it? But people seem to want to do it. Or, you know, you're on the phone to someone and in the background you hear tip, tap, tip, tap, tip. And you know they're sending an email while they're talking to you. You know, it's like, hello? You listening? It doesn't work. It really doesn't work. What we need to learn to do is actually to be able to collect the mind around our chosen task. And so here we're choosing to collect the mind around the metta practice. And even though it has a number of aspects to it, it's quite a complicated practice in some ways. It's not just sitting down and being aware of the breath and simple sensations. We've got the phrases going and the the person that we're sending metta to, the thoughts about them, the feeling about them, the visual image or the sense of them, and, we're, and the, the sense of ourselves as we're doing the practice and how our body's feeling. So we're putting all that together, but it's all with this single intent. And so that's what the mind and the heart can unify around. It's this intention towards developing kindness, to developing um, friendliness, goodwill. So that's where the concentration part of the practice comes in, is this unification of the mind around this intention. The phrases are the main support for the concentration. We can sometimes get concentrated on just the meta feeling if it's steady enough, but it's not quite so reliable or predictable as just the phrases. So that's what the, the main aspect or the main support for the concentration is. So we need to be aware of how we're cultivating both. What we do that cultivates the meta feeling and the different reflections or intentions or inclinations of the mind and heart that support that, and what we do that supports the concentration. And sometimes they can be actually quite different, and what supports one 
doesn't support the other. So our practice is a lot about balancing these two and really finding a, a middle way that really works. So there's a singularness of intention, but there's a lot of things we're paying attention to. So this is why the practice can be challenging. It's finding the right amount of intention, the right amount of effort, the right amount of directedness in the practice, and then the surrender that needs to come. We have to surrender to the practice, to just doing the practice over and over again. Surrender to the form, the schedule. It's a lot of surrender, not something we do very easily in our lives. And renunciation, of course, these two go together. We let go of, as I was saying, the usual busyness of our lives, the distractions, but also some of the pleasures. You know, it's a very simple life here. Your little room, three simple meals a day. You know, it's good food, but it's, it's not, you know, fine cuisine or anything. And you don't get to go into the dining room and say, I feel like Thai food tonight, or, you know, how about some lasagna? We eat what's given. So there's that sense of renunciation. There's a way in which we almost live a monastic kind of life here, really taking what's given, living very simply without distraction, without the usual uh, media that we're so often fed with, of movies and television and books and magazines, internet, etc. So it makes it hard because of all these factors. makes it challenging. But for me, for us, it's probably the most worthwhile thing we can do with our lives is to practice in this way, to have this kind of intention. I just read this from the Dalai Lama the other day. He said, we all have the same human mind. Each and every one of us has the same potential. Our surroundings and so forth are important, but the nature of mind itself is more important. To live a happy and joyful life, we must take care of our minds. That's what we're doing here, taking care of our mind. Really in the ultimate kind of way, the caring way of taking care of our mind. Being kind to our mind, becoming friends with our mind, and inclining the mind towards this uh, cultivation of wholesomeness and kindness towards ourselves and others. It's, it's really the most powerful way to take care of our minds and so important, as the Dalai Lama says. Last week, Gaia and I went to see a movie that I'm sure some of you have already seen called Buck. It's a, a story, a movie, a documentary about this man called Buck Brenneman who's a cowboy, a horseman. And he has quite an amazing story. As a child, he lived in a home where there was a lot of abuse. His father was an unpredictable, mean drunk who forced his kids to perform and do roping tricks and rodeo kind of tricks uh, to support the family and was uh, physically abusive to them. I mean, extremely physically abusive. And also, as I said, with this unpredictability that, that is the hardest kind of things for us as humans to deal with, that sense of not knowing whether you're safe or not. And so his early childhood was full of huge trauma. 
uh, all these challenges that he just had to endure until some outsiders saw what was after his mother died. Um, some outsiders saw what was going on and just literally took him out of that, the care of his father and put him, in, he and his brother, into a foster home. And this foster home, this this couple had taken on, and I don't know if this is total or at one time, but it said 23 kids, I think mainly boys, maybe there were some girls in there, huh? all boys, James saw the movie too, um, all boys, so it was kind of like, you know, you imagine it's just this madhouse of these kids all running around, but for Buck it was his, his savior, it was the place he finally found love and acceptance, and he just flourished, and it's interesting to see sometimes someone is so wounded they can never get over that but something in him enabled him to turn that tide and and leave behind that cycle of abuse but as his stepmother said his foster mother who he calls mother and you know you can tell there's so much love between them she's in the movie and she's this kind of sparkly old woman and she said well you know he never showed early signs of genius or anything nothing special about him but what happened was that um, he became a cowboy, always worked with horses, and at one point was invited to go and see a man, I believe his name was Ray Hunt, who specialized in what you call natural horsemanship, which was a radical shift from how cowboys especially would treat horses, where you would call it breaking a horse. To tame a horse, you would break it, and they had these you know, horrible images, video footage you've probably seen of what they would do is strapping a horse down and whipping it and just trying to break its spirit. And this man, Ray Hunt, and his teacher, Tom Dorrance, would call it starting a horse, making a relationship with a horse. Really a very different way of relating. And Buck, you know, at first was very skeptical. He said, I know horses, I know what to do. But as soon as he saw Ray and how he worked with horses, it was like a light went on. And he just said, there's a different way to do this. And he also knew that he could do it. He, he really sensed that he could teach and learn and practice in the same way as his teachers because he understood the mind of a horse because of his background, because of the abuse he stuff, suffered as a child and the fear that he lived in. He could relate to the fear of horses because horses are prey animals and their main defense is to flee. You know, they... they, they they don't have, you know, they can hurt you, but the, the, from the animals that attack them, their main defense is to flee. And yet as humans, we take them and we constrain them. We put tack on them, bridles and saddles, we tie them up, we do all these kind of things, and they somehow have to work with that. And it's amazing that horses do, that they actually let themselves be gentled and become willing companions often, for human beings. And so his insight into the nature of the horse and its fearfulness and how to invite this sense of um, a trusting relationship really was the start of his whole career. Now, you know, he's actually the model for the movie The Horse Whisperer. And he's revered in horse circles as someone who just has an amazing way with horses because of this empathy that he shows him this understanding. And as he said, he said, you think you're being kind until someone shows you real kindness. That was such a great line. You think you're being kind until someone shows you real kindness. 
he thought he was a good horseman. He thought he was, you know, treating his horses well. And then he saw a whole different level of kindness and uh, connection to horses. So it's a it's uh, something that we have all experienced too, where we saw, thought we knew some level of connection or friendliness or love until someone showed us some deeper possibility and just opened things up. I'm a horse person, so I, I loved seeing that movie. I've, I've had a horse for many years now, and I was always really concerned that my horse was happy. And I would see many people with horses who didn't care about that. You know, they would come and they would get the horse out and they'd ride it around and get it to do all this stuff that was, much of which was very antithetical for a horse, if not downright scary, and then put it back and then go on and get their coffee or go home or whatever. I always wanted my horse to be happy and to be a horse and to be out, be able to graze and go hang out with other horses and do some things that he enjoyed doing. So I can really appreciate what uh, Buck was talking about. But, you know, he also said you have to be firm with horses. They're 1,200 pounds in a, with a two-year-old mind at the best of times, you know, so you have to be, there has to be a firmness. But to really recognize this, again, he said, how quickly they react out of fear, that that's their natural response. It's not anger, it's fear. And again, all of the things that he said about horses, he said he's also seen, seen are true about people how quickly we react out of fear, how we take this view of the world as a a fearful place and try to protect ourselves from it. But he, he really shifted in his relationship when he started to trust the good intentions of the horse and to see that the horse actually wanted to cooperate. Uh, Horsemen often say, if if the horse isn't cooperating, it's not that it's being disobedient, it's that you're asking the wrong question. You're not asking in the right way. If you ask in the right way, I mean, to me it's still amazing that these animals want to cooperate, want to work with us, want to do the things we ask them to do, and are so amazing at times in that. And so he never showed contempt or anger to a horse. He said, that's not helpful. It's not even relevant to this situation. It's not appropriate. He said, I often, you know, people come to me and they say, I've got a horse problem. It's a, you know, people with a horse problem. He said, usually it's a horse with a people problem. That's what he deals with. And so if he can fix the people, if he can train the people, the horse will naturally uh, become workable, become a companion. So we can learn so much from this, from that that sense of trusting in goodness. Can we trust in our own goodness? I mean, you could see a little bit our minds like this frightened animal sometimes, you know, and it's it's quickness to react and it's fear and the contractions that happen, the judgments it leaps to trying to figure things out. It's like just to calm the mind, accept and have this sense of ease and relaxation start to trust our own goodness and that to see, you know, it sounds a bit dualistic, but it seems like this. We can work together in this. Come along, mind. It's okay. You know, let's do this together. Let's stay connected. So we learn so much from, from animals, from ourselves. As I was thinking about, talking about this tonight, I realized that all of us up here have had uh, close relationships with animals, with this 
and had animals as really this uh, emblem of unconditional love, acceptance. Kamala had Feather, beautiful Feather, who lived a long and happy life. James and his dog Pal, one of the best dogs in the world, such a sweet, loving dog. And as I'm going to visit James, he had the pillow. You've probably seen this saying, I'm trying to be the dog, the person my dog thinks I am. Because <laughs> they both loved each other unconditionally. And Guy and I had this beautiful orange cat called Kailash, who lived to be loved. I mean, literally, she was not happy unless she was touching you, unless she was in your lap or, you know, leaning against you, and then she was happy. And it's just amazing, you know, that sense of unconditional love and what it does for us. I mean, it's so powerful, and animals are often a a beautiful way to get that. Again, from Buck, he said, that's the cool thing about horses. They don't have prejudice. They don't care if you're tall or thin or you're dark or you're light or you're rich or you're poor, if you're handsome or not so handsome. They don't care about that. They care about how you make them feel. And if that's the only damn lesson that someone has learned from horses, then they'd be way ahead of the game. They care about how you make them feel. That's an honest relationship. That's the truth that animals, that horses can show us. So many people do use animals as their benefactor because they have this capacity to show us unconditional love, acceptance, And we can use that to really feel into what would that be like? What would that be like for us, for ourselves, to direct it to ourselves? And then what would that be like for us to actually manifest that as a possibility? It's just amazing. And it can be developed. So this practice of metta is based on the understanding that all beings want to be happy and don't want to suffer. And as soon as you start to contemplate that, really take that in, this sense of kindness and compassion just naturally gets evoked. All beings want to be happy, human and non-human, don't want to suffer. And yet, of course, beings suffer. So many beings suffer, human, again, and non-human. I'm sure for all of you, you have your stories, your own suffering, the suffering of those near and dear to you, family, friends, in our circle, family members with life-threatening diseases, cancer, death in the family, uh, people suffering with the economy, really struggling with their livelihood, really struggling. It's just everywhere. And if you open up, of course, it's just, it's just so extreme, the suffering. I was, just happened to be browsing through this book that I got a long time ago. It's by Michael Lunig, who's an Australian cartoonist, actually. But he's also a phil- philosopher and a poet. And this is a book of short notes from the long history of happiness. And he's got poems and cartoons. And this is a prayer for friends. We give thanks for our friends, our dear friends. We anger each other. We fail each other. We share this sad earth, this tender life, this precious time. Such richness, such wildness. Together we are blown about, 
Together we are dragged along. All this delight, all this suffering, all this forgiving life, we hold it together. Just that sense of the challenge of life, the delight, the joy, and the suffering. This practice lets us open to this in this very direct, very profound way. And of course, on the larger scheme of things, as we go beyond the people we know and care about, it's just hard to take in sometimes the suffering there is in this planet, human again and non-human. People that have grown up never not knowing war, that their country has been embroiled in war for 20, 30, 40 years, starvation, injustice, brutality, prejudice, all of the different challenges that there can be to this human life. And of course, in the animal realm, huge amounts of suffering, climate change and farmed animals, just the challenge of taking care of a a life. We were just going into the teacher room after our sitting this morning, and you probably notice there's a lot of nests around here, the swallows are, are nesting, I think for the second time this summer. And right at the Uh, opening to our teacher room, there was the tiniest little baby chick. Its egg had fallen out and it was just there on the ground. Little beak opening, no, you know, I mean, literally it was a half inch long. And it was still alive. So we gathered it up on a piece of paper and got a chair and put it back in its nest and hopefully it survived. It looked okay. And I could just see that little being wants to live. You know, that that force of life wants to be happy, wants to be taken care of. And now the mother's sitting on the nest with her little bright eyes coming and feeding these little chicks. Just a couple of days ago, a a friend sent us a a link to a video that's online. Uh, Another whale rescue story. We've told a story of a whale rescue that happened just outside the Bay Area in the Farallones. And this is a very similar story, except the people had a video So they actually filmed this experience they had in the Sea of Cortez. And these people were actually in a whale protection um, society. They they formed the Great Whale Conservancy. So they were really interested in whales. And they came across across this whale they thought was dead. It was just floating listlessly. But as they got closer, they could see it trying to breathe, trying to surface. And when they got closer again, they saw the whole body had just been entangled in monofilament line, in, in fishing net. So its fins or whatever you call them were pinned against its body and it was being weighed down. And on this boat, they had a tiny pocket knife. It's all they had. But they just started cutting away at the line and the whale was trapped. It couldn't go anywhere. So they were just cutting and cutting. It took them over an hour and pulling and cutting and it would get a little bit free. But the whale just stayed there so they could do this. Um, and they cut and they cut, and they said over an hour, and they finally freed the whale. I mean, they were just they were saying, "We freed the whale." And then the whale just started, and this is interpretation, leaping for joy. You know, whales breach. Well, yes, they do, and they do it quite commonly. But usually, they do it two or three times, and then that's it. This whale breached and flapped and did everything like that for over an hour. Was that joy? Was that gratitude? You know, the scientists say we can't know. Animals don't have feelings. People in the boat didn't have any doubt 
that this whale was just jumping and leaping for over an hour. I have these amazing photographs. Want to be happy, don't want to suffer. And this sense, this empathy that we can have with other beings can actually reduce the suffering and bring joy and gratitude. This practice is very ancient. The Buddha actually taught this practice 2,500 years ago. And many of you may know the story of its origins, how um, in the monastic, Buddhist monastic tradition to this day, it's traditional that for what is called the rains retreat, typically the summer monsoon season, that monks and nuns would just settle in one area and practice because the farmers were um, out planting their fields and they didn't want people trampling, trampling the crops. It was also difficult to move around because of the rain and the mud, so they would settle in a place. So this group of monks went to a forest to practice. And when they arrived there, the tree spirits in the Buddhist time, and maybe even to this day, there are tree spirits who live in the trees and are kind of like spirits, devas, they're called, sort of the Buddhist version of angels. The tree spirits at first didn't mind that these monks were there. They're kind of, what are they doing down there? But when they realized they were settling in for three months, they're like, I don't think so. And so they started doing everything they could to disrupt their practice. They made noises and smells and they shook things. And they got these monks really rattled until they, they ran away in fear and went back to the Buddha and said, we can't practice there. That place is haunted. It's not good. It's not safe. And the Buddha, as he said, he's able to do with his omniscient eye, looked around and said, you know, that's the best place for you guys to get enlightened. I think you should go back there, but I'll give you a protection. I'll give you a practice that'll protect you. And he taught them the metta practice. So its origin was as a protection against fear, that as we cultivate this sense of kindness to our surroundings, there's actually a peace that begins to take hold. So the monks went back, started practicing metta, and the spirits, of devas at first, the tree spirits were, again, a little angry, but when they started feeling this field of metta, of kindness, it said that, of course, they fell in love with having the monks there, and they did everything they could to support their practice, and, of course, everyone got enlightened, as these stories always end on a good note, so everyone got enlightened. But that was the origin of the the metta practice, was um, these monks and uh, being out in the forest. And so we like it on these retreats to chant the metta sutta, which is the description from the text about this practice. So it's the handout that hopefully you've all picked up, and if you don't have... Is there anyone who doesn't have a handout? So we still do need it. We'll get the manager... (laughs) I think they put out about 120, so I don't know where they're going, but um, you meant to bring them and leave them in the hall if you're taking them to your room. We will be using them tonight to do our chant. You don't need to have them for now. Um, I'm going to talk about it a little bit, but I'll, I'll read it. You can, you can uh, just track along with that. So it begins by saying, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. So it starts right there with reflecting on our goodness. Guy led you this afternoon in that practice of actually acknowledging goodness. So I was talking about Buck, seeing the goodness in the horse. The horse actually wants to be helpful, wants to cooperate. So as a practice, we acknowledge that. For many of us, 
it's antithetical. It's like, no, that's either prideful or I don't agree or I'm not worthy or, you know, I'm not a good person. Whatever the beliefs we have, the Buddha is saying, no, inherently you're a good person. Inherently there's goodness. Or you wouldn't be listening to this teaching. You wouldn't be here at this retreat. Really recognize that. Let that be a foundation for your practice. I know we all resisted. I know I did. And I still can resist if I'm feeling deficient or whatever. I can resist it. But I've seen how powerful it is to actually acknowledge the goodness. So it's a practice that I encourage you to take up. uh, a, A traditional Buddhist practice reflecting on goodness. So one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. This is the path of peace. Developing kindness, acceptance. It naturally brings peace into our hearts and our minds. And there's a ripple effect. There's a ripple effect that's so easy to see. Because as, be, as we truly begin to care for ourselves, that caring is uh, the foundation for caring for others. As the Buddha said, if you love yourself, you cannot harm another because you truly know that they feel the same. I mean, if everyone really believed this, it would be the end of war and strife. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It's really what this practice can develop, what a a wise, sincere practitioner can cultivate in their lives and their hearts. It's what we all want to experience. Peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, contented and easily satisfied. I've always loved this line, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. A sense of simplicity, renunciation, contentment. Really beautiful. So it describes how we begin with this reflection on goodness, cultivating goodness, then describes the person who can practice, the metta practitioner, and then goes on to the practice itself. Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. In gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. And the example that's given of what this feeling is like is even as her mother, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart One should cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. And I love this transition. Even as a mother protects this dearest one, the child, the the closest being, but it immediately goes to radiating over the entire world to all living beings. This is the fruition of the practice, to take it from those near and dear, the ones we already love, and begin to have this sense or possibility of the unconditional nature of the experience to all beings everywhere. And then the hard part. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. 
I think the Buddha knows about how hard the first day of practice is. And any drowsiness here today? Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. So this is the um, continuity that we've already begun to talk about, that we need to just have this steadiness. And of course drowsiness will come, sleepiness, restlessness, dullness. But we begin again. We find that willingness, that interest to keep the practice going. To start, you know, and that's the trick. Start and then keep going. Start and then keep going. And it's not that we keep going endlessly, because stuff happens. You know, the body aches, the mind gets restless, so we get lost, and then we start and keep going again. But then the end of the sutta is kind of interesting. It, it, the, most of it is about this practice. We can connect to it, we can relate to it, the mother and the child and the boundless heart and the all beings. But then it says, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So it's this switch and this recognition that if this practice truly developed, if the heart became so full of love and kindness, it wouldn't wish for anything else. This, this grasping, this attachment we have to sense desires, to experience, would drop away and a profound and deep freedom would result. This is the promise. This is the, the teaching here. There's actually a, a, a debate going on in some academic circles as to what the Buddha actually meant. Did the Buddha say this? Did he mean this? Some people saying, yes, that metta on its own can be a liberation practice. If you do it intensively enough, the mind and heart can be freed from suffering. Another saying, no, it's a relative practice. No, no. doesn't matter for our purposes. What we do know is that it can profoundly change the nature, the quality of our minds and hearts, that we can learn to be more kind, more loving, more accepting people. Of that, I have no doubt that that's possible. So what do we need to do to practice metta in the way the Buddhists described this possibility of boundlessness, this gentleness and kindness, the peace? I see such a key is... I was going to say the simple quality. It's not simple. But we start from relaxing, from letting go of the tension and contraction that so many of us live with in an ongoing way. Whether it's mental or physical, and of course they tie into each other, but really learning to soften, to settle, to say it's okay to sit still and just be okay sitting still and doing this practice. So it's this really deep relaxation of mind and body, that letting go of that sense of agitation that can often be predominant. And as I said, you know, when I thought of this relaxation, it sounds like a hammock on a Sunday afternoon, but there's something much deeper going on if we were really, truly to relax, I mean, what would that be like if we were really to relax mind and body? All sorts of things would have to come into play. 
there'd have to be mindfulness because we'd have to know that tension was there and where it was and how it was manifesting and respond to that skillfully. There'd have to be patience because we can't force relaxing. You know, I'm going to relax now. God damn it, you know, better relax. He said relax. It's like, here I am. Can I relax a little bit? Can I relax this piece or this part of body and mind? So a lot of patience and kindness, both to manifest the relaxing, but also the relaxing as an expression of kindness, so that they go together. And really trusting. If we relax, you know, that sigh of relief, that sigh of letting go, we're trusting, we're releasing, relaxing into this moment and basically saying it's okay. It's okay to be doing this. It's okay to be here. It's okay to soften in this way. And of course, we let go of the busyness, the agitation, the, the planning and the re- remembering and the worrying that we're so often filled with. That has to be let go of. So relaxing is not a simple thing. But I offer it to you as uh, a practice. If you start every sitting, just telling yourself three times, relax, relax, relax. And have the meditation start from that. And every time you say it, literally feel relaxing, body, relaxing face, relaxing mind. I'm just seeing more and more how helpful that is and how supportive it is of the concentration aspect of the practice. That this relaxing allows body and mind to come into the present moment in a unified way. There's not resistance, tightness, um, stress, striving. There's just this sense of connectedness. I've been talking a lot recently in retreats about restlessness because I really see it's a major hindrance for most of us as practitioners, particularly here in the West. It's not so prevalent in the people I've spoken to in the East, in Thailand, in India, in Burma, who practice. You know, they have it some, but we specialize in it, I think, in the West. And this just this inability to settle, to truly relax, the mind skittering off to past and future. And I see restlessness really as this fulcrum, both the, the source of and the cause of all of the other hindrances. You know, we're, rela- we're restless, so we get, get into aversion, and then we get into aversion, and we get more restless, and we just get into this feedback loop where we end up, you know, kind of agitated all the time. And I really see at the core of restlessness, this inability to settle, is the mind struggling with this question, am I okay? Was I okay? Will I be okay? Did I do okay? Am I doing okay? Is this okay? Will I be okay tomorrow? What about today? And out of that, you know, some form of asking that question, not even consciously, the mind just just goes off trying to fix. So we end up, you know, in this 10-point improvement program, you know, wanting to be, fix this, change that, make sure that's okay. And it just leads to more and more restlessness. So really to recognize this is not a fix-it program. It's not a self-improvement program. We have to find this balance between accepting ourselves just as we are 
and recognizing that there's a possibility for cultivation, that this practice is one of cultivation. So holding the tension between those two. As Suzuki Roshi, great Zen teacher, says, you're perfect just as you are, but there's always room for improvement. So somehow we sit in the tension of that, just accepting this is the experience right now of mind and body, sinking into that, trusting that, relaxing in that, and then we cultivate, and then we incline the mind towards goodness, towards kindness, towards acceptance. So it's this beautiful balancing that we're always doing. Part of what we'll offer to support this balancing is practicing also the other three Brahma-viharas. We always consider that metta, loving-kindness, is the foundation practice. It's the one the Buddha recommend practicing intensively. But all of the other three of compassion, joy, and equanimity kind of spring out of metta and fill out the picture of the wise heart. They're they're just these beautiful qualities that we can cultivate to support our lives and our practice. So it's said that metta, this kindness, when it sees a being that's suffering, it naturally responds with compassion. It just so easily goes there. When metta sees a being that's happy, that's joyful, it responds with that same expression of joy, of gratitude, of appreciation. And equanimity, of course, has to be there for us to, to stay connected, to stay steady through all these ups and downs. There has to be some element of equanimity. So we'll bring all of these practices in over these coming days. We'll do them in the afternoons and find they're really a beautiful uh, complement and balance to the metta practice. And uh, Well, you'll see if you're not used to it. Buddha Gosha, that um, uh, 5th century um, teacher who wrote this amazing work called the Vasudhimaga Path of Purification, talked a lot about the Brahma-viharas. And he said, the Brahma-viharas are like a mother with four children. One, one child, one, one, he has a child, an invalid, one in the flush of youth, and one busy with her own affairs. She wants the child to grow up. She wants the invalid to get well. Wants the one in the flush of youth to enjoy in full all the benefits of youth and is not at all bothered by the one who is busy with her own affairs. So it's just this sense of these different ways of relating, different responses to different conditions that the other Brahma-viharas fill in and support the metta practice. So as I started off by saying, this retreat will have its challenges. I have no doubt. In ways you wouldn't have expected through, you know, discomfort in the body or memories that come up, emotions and understandings about things. But there's nothing more worthwhile than you could be doing, especially doing metta for oneself. We often say you, you cannot spend too much time doing metta for yourself. It's such an important and healing practice for many of us who have wounds of lack of self-acceptance, judging, and criticism. We learnt from early on in our lives and we've 
embodied those. We've, we've taken those up as beliefs. Metta is such a beautiful antidote to that. As the Buddha said, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. So we really need to remember this. The importance of starting with this practice right here, right now, with ourselves just as we are, and our intention in coming here, coming on the retreat, to open the heart, to strengthen these qualities of mind, to deepen our capacity to be with the difficult things in life, and to really explore this potential that we all have to be more kind, to be more friendly, particularly to ourselves, but of course to others as well. And to acknowledge that we're all here looking for connection, looking to feel connected, to feel whole, to feel acceptance. Accepting ourselves, accepting others, accepting everything, accepting our experience. There's this beautiful poem by a Japanese poet, Izumi Shikubu, that I often say at Metta Retreats because it just speaks to what this practice can do. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. That to me is metta practice. No part left out. This practice will shine a bright light on every aspect of your being. Your inner world, your outer world, the way you relate to yourself, the way you relate to your loved ones and the difficult people in your life. Every part will be brought to light for your uh, understanding and for the growth in wisdom. We'll do forgiveness practice so we can begin that process of letting go of some of the past wounds and hurts. And we'll cultivate this. When, when, when it gets difficult, when these challenging aspects of our inner world, our outer world get revealed, that's not the practice failing, but actually the practice working. And our willingness to stay with that, to stay present, to not get dismayed or disheartened, but to actually open to these challenges and see if we can bring some love and acceptance is, is this practice, is the heart of this practice. So we cultivate a friendly heart. It's a retraining of our heart and mind from this tendency to negativity or scarcity or uh, resistance or resentment. We train in kindness and in goodness. And we know that it's possible. We know that this is definitely available for us. We know it by the example of the animals here on the land that relate so differently here than they do. I live in Woodacre, 
And the deer, when I walk by them in Woodacre, run away. And here they kind of just look at you and say, you know, okay, hi, you know, I'll move a little bit, but not going anywhere. Because they've had years of people practicing metta, walking slowly, being kind and gentle, gentle. So let this place support you. Let it reveal the peace that's possible for you in your own heart and mind. When someone on retreat told me her mantra once was to, to really deepen her practice. Lower your standards and be a little more kind. You know, don't be so hard on yourself. Be a little more kind. And then everything will unfold. Everything will become present. So we need to remember to practice metta with metta. Well, my wish for you is that you learn to relax and you practice metta with metta. So at the end of our evening discourses, we often like to allow just a little time in silence before we go into movement. So you don't need to change your posture. It's just to allow the words to settle. And we sit together in silence for a minute or two. And then I'll ring the bell. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Thank you for your attention. There's a little over half an hour now for walking, and we'll come back at 9 o'clock for our last sit together. And we'll do it a little shorter than it says on the schedule because I know it's been a long day. So, uh, shorter sitting, and we'll do some chanting to end the evening with. So, please join us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.